It's a great joy and blessing to be here today. I'm very thankful uh, for the opportunity that we have as a family to come together to praise our Father. There, there are many things uh, about this spiritual family that, that I appreciate, uh, but our, our love for one another uh, is something that, that only God's Spirit can truly produce. Uh, and I, I'm very grateful to God for, for the work that, that He is doing among us in that regard and, and pray that He will continue to do. Love is one of the most overused and maybe misunderstood words in the English language. Uh, you can love pizza, you can love your dog, you can love Steelers football, you can love your spouse all at the same time, hopefully in different ways. But when we come to the scriptures, God doesn't just tell us to love, he defines love for us. Uh, we read in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8 that God is love, and perhaps that statement tells us at least as much about love as it does about God. <laughs> because God, as we look at his character throughout the scriptures, we see what love truly is. Because we can't just superimpose our definition of love and then put it upon God. We have to let God show us what love is. And so we see that through the example of Jesus Christ. We see that in the Lord throughout history. But perhaps no other place better defines what love is for us and, and shows us the excellence and, and preeminence of love within our lives as this chapter here in 1 Corinthians 13. Probably many times heard sections of this chapter, but 1 Corinthians 13, unlike you know, a psalm, has a context. It's not just a unit within itself. Here, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and the church in Corinth is having a whole lot of problems. Uh, their assemblies are a train wreck. Uh, they're just chaotic, and we see that throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. We see the division going on early in the book, that some were of Paul and some were of Paulus, or at least he uses those as examples of the type of division that they had among them. And this was finding their way into the assembly. Uh, that in the Lord's Supper, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we see that they were making it into a self-indulgent feast, that they were eating their own meals separate from one another. But in chapters 12 through 14, primarily he's addressing the misuse of spiritual gifts. And we see that at that time, by the, the working of the Holy Spirit, they were able to, to speak in tongues and to, to prophesy. Um, and many other gifts uh, that were part of that, that infancy of the church. And yet they were using this, instead of to encourage and edify and serve one another, they were using this to compete with one another, to promote themselves and so in chapter 12, we have Paul talking about the church as a body and how it, each and every part needs one another. And they need to have the same care for one another. In chapter 14, we have him talking about the importance of focusing on edification in the assembly, that we're here to build up and encourage one another, not to build up and, and, and boast and uh, puff up myself. And chapter 13 falls right in the middle of that. Chapter 13, with the love that he talks about here, is the, the glue that keeps that body together. The love is the motivation that should be behind that edification of First Corinthians chapter 14. And so he calls this, at the end of chapter 12, a more excellent 
way. Yes, the spiritual gifts had their purpose. They were there for the edification uh, of the body. But he says, I'm going to tell you about something more important, more foundational. And that's what I want us to focus on today. This more excellent way, the way of love here in 1 Corinthians 13. And this afternoon, I want us to primarily seek to examine our hearts, to ask the question, am I walking on that excellent way? Are we giving the proper focus to love within our lives? Are we meeting God's definition of love in our relationship with our our families, our neighbors, our brethren, uh, and even our enemies? And so what we're going to do today is maybe a little bit different than than some of uh, the sermons that that we present from this pulpit. Really, I I almost view this as church-assisted Bible reading. Uh, We're just going to read through this passage piece by piece, and we're going to seek to look into it as we look into a mirror. That each step along the way, we're going to say, okay, how does this apply to me? What, What areas do I see in my heart that aren't matching up with God's definition of love? And so we're basically going to let this passage preach itself. Let's start off with the first three verses here. We see the necessity of love. Verse 1 says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. My service without love accomplishes nothing. It doesn't matter how many people I teach, how many sermons I preach, if I'm not motivated by love, I am useless. And so as we think about ourselves here, you might think, well, what, what service do I perform? Uh, whether it be teaching a Bible class, cleaning the building, whether it be going out and, and giving to those in need, being generous, uh, whether it be writing cards or making calls to those who are, are sick or discouraged, whether it be leading in worship, uh, leading in songs or leading in prayer. Not only do we need to ask the question, what service am I rendering, but Why do I do it? Am I simply doing those things because it makes me feel good about myself? Am I simply doing those things because of the recognition that I receive from others? Or maybe because it's expected of me, because I'm simply kind of paying my my dues? Or is it genuinely motivated by love? Am I giving to those in need because I genuinely love them and care about their situation and their struggles? Am I looking out for, for those who are struggling and discouraged because I care about their spiritual well-being? Am I teaching a Bible class not just because it's my turn, but because I love those children and want their souls and their hearts to be molded in the image of God to get, bring glory to Him? If it's not love that's motivating me, it's, it's going to show in the way that I serve. And my service, whatever it may be, is going to be useless in the eyes of God. Even if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. What we'll see is if we're not motivated by love, we'll maybe still be doing that service, but often find ourselves complaining about it, find ourselves dreading uh, the time when, when I'm signed up to, to teach or I'm signed up to do this or that. Uh, or volunteer uh, in this way or that way. And we won't be approaching it with the proper um, perspective, uh, and ultimately we won't be effective. 
But closely related to that in verse 2, he says, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. My skills without love are regarded as nothing in the eyes of God. It doesn't matter how talented, how gifted, how knowledgeable I am. God's not impressed by that. If I don't possess love, my other characteristics and abilities, however valuable I may think they are, are valueless in the eyes of God. Love is ultimately what should turn our skills into service in the first place. If when we ask the question, well, what service are you rendering, you couldn't really come up with anything, maybe it's because love is not driving you to serve others around you. Uh, love should be that motivation that, that causes us to use the resources and abilities that God has blessed us with uh, for the service of others. Love is going to seek out ways to employ our talents and encouraging and edifying the church. Your abilities may make you somebody great in the world, but in God's kingdom, if those abilities are not being used with love, then we don't have anything. Uh, in God's sight, nothing of true value. Whatever my abilities may be, they're only going to be valued if they are being used in love. In verse 3, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver my own body to be burned, but have not love, I have gained nothing. Now that sounds like a pretty extreme sacrifice, right? This ultimately giving our lives, that's what Jesus did in his love for us. And yet we're told that no amount of sacrifice, not giving all that I have, which Jesus called upon the rich young ruler to have, do not giving my very body to be burned, or some of the martyrs did, is going to profit me anything before God if it's not motivated by love. It doesn't matter how much I give of myself in the Lord's service. If it's not motivated by love, my condition before God is hopeless. Some may expend themselves tirelessly in the Lord's service, but their motivation at the end of the day is so that they can sit down and pat themselves on the back uh, and be proud of what they have done. Is that us? God doesn't just look at the outward service or even the outward sacrifice. He looks at the heart. And we need to make sure that we're not just judging ourselves by what outward service or outward sacrifice we're making, but we are evaluating our hearts before God. No price that I could ever pay will atone for a heart where the love of God is absent. And so I have to start with love. My service needs to be motivated by love. My skills need to be employed in service by love. Uh, and I need to be sacrificing uh, of what I have because of my love for the Lord and my love for others. If I start with love, all those other things will follow. But what is love? If it is so important, so foundational in any service that I render, then I better make sure that I properly understand how God defines love. And so I want us to go through verses 4 through 7 um, you know, and many times you, you have a, a three-point sermon, a four-point sermon. We're going to have a 15-point sermon here. Um, and so what, what I want to encourage you to do, we're, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on each of these. But remember our purpose in reading this. 
Our purpose is to look into God's word as a mirror and to determine, is that me? Does that describe me? And if it doesn't, then which of these areas do I need to grow in? And I, I challenge you as we read these, uh, look in your own heart and, and pick out, you know, all of these are things that we need to work on. Pick out one or two that you know that you're failing in, that you need to grow in. And pray about those things. Think about those things. First of all, here in verse 4, love is patient. Here, patience is the idea of long suffering. The, the Greek word literally comes from two words that mean long tempered. The, the opposite of somebody who is quick tempered or hot tempered. This is somebody who, who can bear long um, with ir- irritating and aggravating things who is not easily provoked. Do I retaliate when others wrong me? Is my temper easily stirred up? Do I quickly become frustrated with others? Or do I respond with wrath? Or do I respond in a soft answer? Do I react when being wronged with gentleness and forbearance? Do I turn the other cheek when insulted or ridiculed? And remember that our goal here is not, do I understand what this means? Our goal is, is this me? Is this how I live? Love is kind. This is a word that means gracious, pleasant, or mild. It's the opposite of bitter, sharp, or harsh. It's used in Luke 5 and verse 39 to describe uh, an old wine that has been mellowed and becomes pleasant to the taste because of time. This is something that, that doesn't have that bitter and biting edge to it, but has a grace about it. Am I known as somebody with a sweet disposition? Am I pleasant to be around? Am I known for being disagreeable and inconsiderate? Do people see me as bitter and harsh? Uh, Or would kindness be something that quickly comes to mind as people think about my character and interactions with them? And as we continue, we see many things that love is not. Love is not jealous or envious. It does not covet Uh, This is the idea of of begrudging the possessions of others or the recognition that they receive. Here in Corinth, this idea of the spiritual gifts, many were using those spiritual gifts for one purpose or another, and and people were were looking at them and competing and saying, well, I I want to be in that role. I want to be in the limelight. Um, But here, love will not act in such a way. Do we find ourselves feeling ill will towards those who possess things that we do not? Or receive honor and recognition that we do not? Or are we genuinely happy for them and rejoice in the blessings that they have received? 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 26, when it's talking about the body, it says that when one member rejoices, all members rejoice with it. Uh, When one, one member suffers, all suffer with it. Is that my attitude? towards others, or would I rather simply have that recognition, that rejoicing for myself? Closely related to this, we see that love does not brag. This is the idea of boasting or vaunting oneself, to sing one's own praises, or to put our own abilities and accomplishments on display. William Barclay says, true love will always be more impressed with its own unworthiness than with its own merit. 
Do I enjoy finding opportunities to demonstrate my own knowledge and talents to other people? Do I find myself trying to bring up my accomplishments <coughs> in conversation? Uh, when it comes to uh, maybe social media, do, do I, I find myself trying to kind of pr present all the wonderful things about myself for the world to see uh, because I find pleasure in other people's looking up to uh, my abilities or my accomplishments? Or am I more interested in others' abilities and others' accomplishments? Am I quicker in conversation to bring up what's going on with them uh, and what I appreciate about them? The attitude behind this is arrogance. It says love is not arrogant or puffed up. It's the idea of an inflated self-importance, the attitude behind bragging. Maybe I refrain from bragging only because I know that it's not socially acceptable. And I, I find myself wanting to brag, but I, I kind of pull back and find more subtle ways to, to put my accomplishments on display. And yet, is my attitude one that is focused on self? And so we need to make sure that, that we're not stroking our own ego, but that our thoughts are genuinely humble. That is the attitude of love. Love does not act unbecomingly. It's the idea of, of rude or disgraceful, dishonorable or indecent behavior. Do you have good manners? And when we say good manners, we're not talking about, you know, Emily Post's book of etiquette and making sure you know all the cultural do's and don'ts. What we're talking about is acting in such a way that is considerate to those around us. Uh, acting in such a way as not to cause unnecessary uh, offense. Do I conduct myself with, with grace and decency, or do I have a tendency to lose my filter and behave in ways that are going to be offensive to other people around me? And, and perhaps one of the, the core issues with a lot of these is that love is not self-seeking. When we are self-seeking, we'll be envious. When we're self-seeking, we might be arrogant and brag and puff up ourselves. We might not act in such a way that is considerate of how it's going to affect others around us. William Barclay says, in the last analysis, there are in this world only two kinds of people, those who are continually thinking of their rights and those who are continually thinking of their duties. Those who always insist upon their privileges and those who always remember their responsibilities. Where's my focus? Am I focused on what you need to be doing for me and what I get out of this relationship? And, and when I come to church, well, is it fulfilling me and is it giving me what I want? That's not the attitude of love. The attitude of love is going to be focused on what can I do for you? Are your needs being met? Are you being encouraged? Are you being edified? Uh, if only that attitude was in the church at Corinth, a lot of this conflict would be resolved. So am I constantly thinking and pursuing my own glory and desires, or am I constantly losing myself in service to the needs and desires of others? Love is not provoked, not easily irritated or incensed. This is kind of the negative side of being long-suffering, that we are not quick-tempered. Do I walk around with a chip on my shoulder? Do I get easily offended or worked up about something? If somebody was trying to push my buttons and get me angry, would they find it an easy task or would they find it very difficult to push my buttons? 
you know, we, we need to make sure that, that we're not people that are known for, for very easily getting irritated. That's not the attitude of love. Love, we're told, does not dwell on evil. Thinks no evil, some versions say, does not keep a record or tally of wrong suffered. This was actually, uh, this word dwell is a technical term used in commercial dealings in which somebody would enter a ledger or enter a debt upon a ledger. Um, and so keeps no record of evils suffered, some versions might say. It's the same word in Philippians 4 and verse 8 that we're told to dwell on these things. Whatever is noble, whatever is true, uh, whatever is pure, we're told to think or dwell on these things. Well, here we see love does not think or dwell on evil. Am I critical of others? Do I find it hard to forgive or overlook a fault or leave a disagreement in the past? that I might need to work on this area in my love for others. We're told love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, does not find joy in sin or derive pleasure from injustice. Mike Willis says, anything that is wrong in God's sight should grieve the loving heart because it realizes that someone suffered because of the sin. Knowing that God was grieved by the act of sin causes those who love God to be grieved. Do I find enjoyment or entertainment from sin? You know, the, the world finds a great deal of entertainment from sin. You look at any modern sitcom and you'll see that a lot of the jokes in one way or another have to do with some sin, something that's dishonoring God. Is that me? Well, the heart of love that actually cares about people, that cares about what sin does to lives, what sin does to God, is not going to find any pleasure or any enjoyment in sin. Do I find sin humorous? Or do we grieve over the damage that it does to the soul and the price that had to be paid for it upon the cross? On the other end, love rejoices in truth. Love values and treasures the truth even when it hurts because we know uh, it is what is needed for the highest good of man's soul. Do we welcome the light of God's truth into our heart to expose the error in our lives? Do we take great joy in the proclamation of God's word to the lost? Do we care deeply enough about others around us to tell them what they need to hear and not just what they want to hear? Genuine love is not going to gloss over the truth. Genuine love is going to recognize that the truth is exactly what is needed in our own lives as well as in the lives of those around us. We see that love bears all things. Uh, the, the word for bear here is literally to, to roof or, or cover over, to keep off something threatening, to bear up against the blows that would uh, be suffered by somebody else. And so you can almost get this picture of bearing all things, of, of covering over somebody, standing over them, uh, and taking the penalty on their behalf. Is that not what Jesus' love did for us? Are we willing to put ourselves in between our, our family and the things that threaten to harm them, or our neighbors, or even our enemies? Are we willing to take the blows upon our arm, own back if it means that others can be saved? That's the attitude of Jesus. Love believes all things. 
We need to believe the best, give others the benefit of the doubt, be willing to trust others. Now, this doesn't mean that love is gullible or easily deceived or taken advantage of, but it does mean that my nature is not one that is suspicious and untrusting and assuming the worst. It means that I genuinely desire to assume the best, to think the best of others, to believe uh, and trust uh, that there is good in others. Am I willing to believe the best or am I assuming the worst? And closely related with that, love hopes all things, even when the evidence may point to the contrary. Even when it may be very clear that somebody is not who they need to be. Love genuinely hopes the best in others. Do we write people off? Are we pessimistic about their motives? Or are we positive and eager about their potential for good? Genuine love is not going to quickly seek to apply the, the principle of not casting pearls before swine. Genuine love is going to be very slow to, to come to that conclusion. We are going to hope the best in others. Um, love does not let discouragement steal away its hope uh, in other people. And love endures all things. You might think bears all things, endures all things, are very similar ideas. Um, but bearing all things, we said, was this idea of kind of covering over, enduring all things, uh, is actually the idea of, of bearing underneath. Uh, to stay or remain under is the uh, literal translation of the word there. Uh, to help lift up others' burdens. And so... To love, no burden is too heavy to bear for somebody else. Do we have a limit to how much of another's load we're willing to carry? Now, I understand that there may be a limit to how much of their load would genuinely be helpful for us to carry. Sometimes we need to let people uh, suffer the consequences of their own sins. We need to let people uh, take responsibility for their own actions. And, and there may be times that we, there is some limit to our ability to help one another, uh, to help somebody else, that, that we have some other obligation in service to others. But let there never be a limit on our willingness to endure somebody else's burdens. If, if we ever get to a point where we say, well, I know this would help you, I know that you need this, but I, I've just given too much then we don't have the attitude of Christ. We don't have this attitude of love. Love has no limit on how much they are willing to endure when it is genuinely for that other person's good. That's not something that, that is culturally acceptable. That, that's not something that, that makes sense from an earthly perspective. But brethren, that's what Jesus is calling us to and so, as you look at each of these words, how does it look in the mirror? What do you see in yourself? I challenge you to, to pick out one or two that you feel like you need to work on most. Include them in your daily prayers. Reflect on them each night as you go to bed. Because, brethren, there is no characteristic to the Christian life that is more foundational than our love for one another. But the end of this chapter talks to us about the permanence of love. Verse 8 begins by saying that love never fails. 
if you read with me in verse 8, it says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Here, the Corinthians were putting their emphasis on these spiritual gifts. Right? And, and that's what was really important, that we're able to, to use these and show how gifted we are by God. And yet, Paul is emphasizing to them that those things are going to pass away. Prophecies are, are going to cease. Uh, knowledge, this miraculous knowledge receiving from the Spirit is, is going to pass away. Uh, prophesy, prophecy is not going to last. And so what we really need to focus on is not something that is quickly here today and gone tomorrow, but something that is going to last for all eternity. And while we may not struggle in the same way with with speaking in tongues or, or those spiritual gifts, we need to recognize that our abilities and our accomplishments in the here and now are not going to last either. They're, they're going to pass away. As we grow older, our ability to speak, our ability to uh, teach others, to, to serve in certain capacities are going to begin to wane. But you know what is never going to wane? Our ability to love. No matter what I am able to do in the future, I can always choose to love. And at the end of the day, that's what's most important, most foundational. Because that has the deepest and most lasting impact. Love, in contrast to these spiritual gifts, is complete. He says in verse 11 and 12, Starting verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Here he talked in verse 10 about that these are in part. These spiritual gifts, Paul had a part, Peter had a part, Luke had a part, and they were each serving to bring about the, the full revelation of God. But he says there's going to come a time when the complete or the perfect comes and the partial is going to be done away with. These gifts were only for the infancy of the church. And yet as the church matured and the full revelation came, there would no longer be a need for these things. But as the church matured and grew, all the more love was going to be, need to be their focus. Uh, we see in 2 Peter chapter 1, when Peter talks about what we might call the stair steps of spiritual growth, he says, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge. Do you know what's at the very top of the list? And a brotherly kindness, love. As we think about growing and maturing, it's not that as we grow and mature, then we're going to need love less and less. No, he says, as you grow and mature, you're going to need some of these gifts less and less. But love, you're going to need more and more. But that is the, the pinnacle of spiritual maturity is reflecting the love of God. We're told in verse 13 that love is ultimately preeminent. It says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Even in contrast to these spiritual gifts that were only for, for a time within the church, he says faith and hope and love are going to abide. You're always going to need these says, but the greatest is love. You think about how foundational faith is. You go through the book of Romans. You look through uh, Hebrews 11 throughout the scripture. How much do we see emphasis on the importance of faith? Our foundation in trusting and believing in God and his power of salvation. 
And yet here we're told that love is preeminent above faith. Faith, Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, is the, the evidence of things not seen. But what about when we do see them? What about when we do come into God's presence in heaven? Will we need that faith? Not in that sense. No. Faith even will come to an end when we come to see God fully as he is. Hope, we're told in Romans chapter 8 and verse 24, we hope for what we do not see. Hope is so foundational to who we are as Christians, and yet there's going to come a time where that hope is realized. Our faith is going to become sight. Our hope is going to be replaced with our reward. But love is not going to be replaced. In fact, love is going to be the foundation of our joy in heaven that we're going to be able to share in the love of God and enter into his presence, into that relationship for all eternity. And so as we challenge ourselves today, as we look into the mirror and we evaluate which of these characteristics do I need to be focusing on? Which areas am I failing in? Which areas do I need to work on? Many times we think, well, yeah, maybe I I struggle with with being easily provoked, but that's just part of my personality. Brethren, the character of Christ needs to conquer our personality. It's not that we're all going to, to you know, be, be robots, be the exact same. Certainly we have different personalities, different strengths and weaknesses. But if there's some area of my personality that is in contradiction to what Christ tells me I need to be, then I need to kill it. I need to get rid of it. We need to make sure that we are allowing the love of God, the love of Christ, to do its work within our hearts. And so if you recognize some area in this description of love that, that doesn't describe you. If you can't put your name in there and say, Grady is patient and kind. Grady does not envy and boast. Then let's make sure that we give this its proper priority in our lives. Let's go home tonight and be praying about that. Let's get up tomorrow and be thinking about how we can make that change to be more like our Lord. Because he ultimately defines for us what love is. What about you today? If you recognize that there's some area that you need to change, maybe there's some public change that you need to make. You need to ask for the prayers of these brethren. You need to ask for their forgiveness in some area that you haven't reflected this love towards them. We want to be the the type of a family, the type of flock, that, that we are able to help one another through those struggles. And if there's some area that you need to, to confess uh, some struggle, some sin, that's what we're here for. If you recognize that you're not part of God's family, know that God loves you. God loves you as we just saw described. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. And if you're willing to confess your belief in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, if you're willing to turn your life over to him completely and bury your old life in baptism, you can be raised to walk in newness of life. If anybody is subject to the Lord's invitation, won't you please make it known by coming to the aisle as we sing together.